For what do I have if I don't have you, Jesus? What in this life could mean anymore? You are my rock. You are my glory. Hi and welcome to The Rock Podcast. Paul the Apostle concludes his letter to the Ephesians in a very dramatic way. He pulls back the curtain and reveals the unseen forces which fight against us in our everyday Christian lives. Now let's join Pastor Ross with a message entitled, The Armor of God. Good morning everybody, good morning. A fascinating study awaits us, so here we go, Ephesians Chapter 6, we're going to pick up where we left off and finish the uh, book, as I let you know, uh, starting at verse 10. Uh, Let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, as we talk about these spiritual realities, which seem so weird to our hearing, Father, we pray that you'd increase our faith and our understanding that we might... Uh, grasp these truths and put them into practice so that we could be uh, blessed and a blessing to you and to others. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Here's what C.S. Lewis uh, said about the devil and his cohorts. I've got the quote for you on the screen. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devil and his demons. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. That's a great quote to begin a study that involves talking about spiritual warfare. Uh, Yeah, the first mistake would be, of course, to discount the supernatural realm altogether, which some people do, just to dismiss the ideas of evil beings that we cannot see because we cannot see them, so out of sight, out of mind, right? Um, What's funny, and one writer pointed it out, he said, what what a strange paradox, because from our point of view, and the Bible's point of view, it's only those who are under the spell of the very devil himself who truly doubt his existence. Of course, that's part of his strategy, is to make the idea of the devil and the supernatural kind of uh, absurd to us. Uh, For example, uh, you know, all the cartoon images, of course, is... uh, You know that he runs around in a red suit with horns and a pitchfork and and all of that nonsense. And so there's sort of an effort on his part to uh, ridicule the idea, the whole idea in the first place. And of course, not only the devil, but of course, hell as well. Uh, Lots of jokes about hell. This one happens to be funny here. Uh, the homicidal maniacs compartment, and then there's a compartment for terrorists, and then a compartment for people who drove too slow in the fast lane. Uh, Yeah. I laughed too, but then, you know, that aside, and thank you for that. That aside, you know, our Lord and Savior Jesus, who claimed to have come down from heaven as God the Son, the God-man, 
He would know a thing or two about these things, and he's the one who talks a very in detailed description of a place that's terrifying. It just, I mean, the Lord says it exists, and he talks about it and describes it in terms that we are all very uh, familiar with. And so uh, that's an error, and a pretty good strategy is to just um, say, you know, they don't exist. Uh, Why? Because you can't protect yourself uh, from the dangers Uh, that you've been persuaded do not exist, right? So that would make sense as a strategy. Now, on the other hand, Lewis says that it is also a mistake to believe in their existence and then to just make too much about it. You know, when you meet those Christians, they're always, they talk more about the devil and demons uh, than they do Jesus. And that's the mistake is because Christianity is a relationship with God through Christ that we are obsessed with serving the Lord and living in his love and keeping his commands and sharing the gospel and dying to self and living for God and moral transformation and all of these things. That's what we're about, you know. We're not about uh, obsessing on uh, unseen evils, but we are told uh, to, to be mindful. Now, in as inordinate fear or weird preoccupations or excessive interests are unbecoming for God's people. Uh, We are told the healthy approach is just to take God at his word about their existence and then when he does give instructions about how to deal with these matters uh, to, to live accordingly. You know, and so we happen to find ourselves upon a passage uh, that talks about these realities uh, of spiritual warfare, the existence of the evil one, and his intention to do God's people harm. And God's uh, agendas are his uh, agendas as well, but to hinder. And so uh, here, as Paul wraps up uh, the letter to his dearly loved uh, friends at Ephesus, uh, he's going to give them a heads up. Hey, here's what's really going on. I want you to pay attention so that uh, you can be victorious and unmovable in your Christian life. So he begins by saying, finally, wrapping things up in the letter, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after... And after you've done everything, to stand. And so, uh, as is our custom, we'll walk through the passage. We'll break it up into bite-sized pieces we can uh, make some sense of and apply to our lives. And this first one here uh, is beginning with an unpleasant uh, reality and a needful objective. If you're taking notes, an unpleasant reality and a needful objective. The unpleasant reality, of course, are there unseen, malevolent, or evil forces in this world, forces that we cannot see, but they see us. And they have their designs upon us, and not for good, but for evil. 
That is a disconcerting thought. Now, and now the needful, needful objective here is, is that we survive any evil attack. You know, Lord, the Lord taught us to pray, lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Even in the model prayer, there is an acknowledgement that there is a devil and there is temptation and that we, ne- we should be uh, mindful and prayerful about that. So he says, the point of this passage is that when he takes his best shot in those days, in the seasons of your life, that after he fires, you're standing. And that is a military term uh, that means to hold your position. What does it mean to hold your position as a Christian? Faith in Jesus Christ, that the gospel is a center to your life, that the love of God and making him known is what you're all about, that you don't back down to stand and that you don't have a moral compromise or a theological compromise at that. And so uh, first here, the unpleasant reality. Uh, The context is pretty important. The context, really, I mean, he doesn't just say, hey, let's talk about the devil for the sake of talking about the devil. This fits into a context, and what the context is, is how to live the Christian life. So he's been saying to people who come to know the Lord, there has to be moral transformation now. You went from darkness to light, from unbelief to faith. By confessing your sins, turning to Christ, the Holy Spirit has come into you, and he wants to make some changes. You don't wake up the next day with all this character and um, Christian maturity. That's a lifetime process. So the book of Ephesians has been telling the individual, you have to cooperate with God. You have to, instead of being sexually immoral, now the Ephesians coming out of paganism, you have to be self-controlled and morally pure right? And and instead of telling lies, you need to tell the truth, right? Because the Holy Spirit's on board now, and he's changing you. Well, then what did he do? And right before these passages, here's the immediate context. He brought Christian transformation into our relationships and said, hey, you have to live like a Christian husband. That means putting your wife first, like Christ put the church first. He bled out for her. It wasn't about Christ. And so husbands, we, uh, you need, God wants you to love your wife above and beyond your own interests to put her first. Wives, you need to come under leadership like that. You, you need not to be taking charge, but to let him do his God-appointed duty and lead as he serves God and serves you and the family that you yield to him, right? And so then he went to moms and dads. Moms and dads, don't be overly harsh with unreasonable demands, right? Uh, but come alongside and nurture them and with kindness and gentleness and uh, a firm discipline uh, as well. And he talked to children. Children, you know, you just can't cut and paste your obedience and your honor of mom and dad. You have to obey them, listen to them. Then he talked to masters, so bosses, employers. And he said, listen, if you want them to respect you, you ought to have a workplace where they can respect you. You're sensitive. Uh, you're not lording your authority and abusing them. You're, you're really a good boss to work for because you're Christian and you're kind and you're caring. And then employees, he said, oh, don't ever think of misrepresenting me, the Lord speaking to the Christian employee, 
as somebody who's lazy, who has a bad attitude, who doesn't like to work, who talks smack about their supervisor, he says, you're representing me, Christian. You need to treat your boss and supervisor as you would me, the Lord. Well, after those words, all of us would know, oh my word, life is going to be a battle. And in the context of overwhelming us with what? That's impossible. Who could possibly always live like that? He's going to say, exactly. And then he says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And then he adds on top of everything, uh, invisible reality that makes uh, our work even that much more uh, challenging. You know, it is hard. It's hard to hear all those exhortations and wonder, what, how, how am I ever going to do those things? Um, speaking of that, uh, did you hear the one about... <clears throat> did you hear about the one the husband comes home uh, and he comes down with some kind of uh, mysterious illness that he tells his wife about, so they decide to go to the doctor. The doctor examines him, calls him back and says, I want to tell the wife first, you know, so he brings the wife into the office and he says, listen, I've got some bad news from you, for you. Your husband is suffering from a very rare neurological disorder and if you don't do the following, your husband surely will die. Now, each morning, what, uh, he really needs you to rise early and fix him a, a very healthy, nutritious breakfast. And, and all, in fact, all the meals have to be like that. Uh, and you'll need to be pleasant at all times. And you'll need to not burden him with chores uh, or overwhelm him with problems. Uh, it will only make his stress worse. And, and above all, no nagging whatsoever. No nagging, and very important, if he initiates a romance, welcome it. <laughs> welcome it. Always welcome it. It's there in the joke right there. So if, if you can do this then, dear wife, uh, in, if you do it consistently for 10 months to a year, your husband will live and recover. So they get in the car, and the husband looks at his wife and says, honey, just tell me, give it to me straight. What did the doctor just tell you? And she said, well, honey, he just told me it looks like you're going to die. <laughs> I liked it. I liked that joke. It's impossible to do what God has asked us to do, humanly speaking. Let's not kid ourselves. You have all the willpower you want. You cannot love your wife uh, like that 24-7, and wives can't treat their husbands like that 24-7. We're going to fall short in parenting, at work, the whole nine yards. But what does he say? That's a common reaction, by the way, in the Bible. Uh, the, the Lord was teaching, and the disciples went, well, then who can be saved, right? And Jesus says, exactly. With man, this is impossible. With God, all things are possible. So God exhorts us to what he expects life as born-again people, uh, how they should be living, and then he tells us where to find the power and the strength. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Not through my willpower, right? What did Jesus say? He, he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. You can't do anything. 
And the anything he's talking about are the commandments of the Lord for the Christian life. So with that said, he's going to say, look, you're going to need to be strong in the Lord and his mighty power and put on the full armor of God so that you'll be able to do what God has called you to do. And so what he's got here is he's going to tell us where to find our strength, and he's going to tell us how to focus our energies, and really he's going to reveal to us where the true battle lies. Let's start with a full disclosure. Okay, here's the full disclosure. He's saying there's more going on in your life, O Christian, than meets the eye. You think that it's about your husband, just the face that you see, or your boss, or your rebellious child, or the problem with this and that. God's take is, yes, that's a problem on the surface, but more significantly are the powers behind those relationships. He says, you wrestle, that word their struggle is the Greek word to wrestle. You wrestle out your life. You're wrestling right now. That's what he's talking about. You wrestle to be a Christian, to live your life, is a kind of a wrestling match. And he's saying, your opponent isn't your wife or your husband or your boss or this problem or that problem or the other thing. Yes, on the surface, but behind those things, therein lie the eternal the powerful things, and you're going to need a heads up on that, or how else are you going to know? So, for example, he's just told young men to keep themselves morally pure. If there's a spiritual being that I can't see as a young man who's bent on helping me compromise my morality and to set me up and stick his foot out, and he knows where I'm struggling, and he knows where I'm going to fall, and he's out to harm me, in that area, and I don't know about it, how am I ever going to rise to the occasion and live a morally pure life? Marriages, if couples are going to obey what just came in, in, in the preceding verses, how are we ever going to, to be a good husband, a Christian wife, if we don't know there are forces that we can't see that are bent on dissolving the marriage? of increasing division, of exaggerating offenses to set us up and exploit our weaknesses in the marriage so that it will fail. Now, if I don't know that somebody has me in their line of fire because I can't see them, I don't even know about it, you step on the rattlesnake, you hear the rattle, but it's two ladies already bitten you. And that's the strategy of the devil is to operate in the darkness so God says, just want to turn on the lights, kids. I want to turn on the lights, pull back the veil, and kind of let you see into the supernatural that your problem is not just merely on the physical surface plane. You've got to start thinking three-dimensional. There's another dimension, and that dimension, he says, is more significant than the face value one. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against these rulers, authorities, powers, uh, and spiritual forces. What is he saying? He's saying when you compare the problem, the problem isn't with your wife. The problem isn't with your husband. The problem is that you just don't have a self-control problem. The problem isn't I just don't know why I can't get to church. I can get everywhere else. 
but I just can't. And I can read lots of stuff, but I just can't read the Bible. Every time I open it up, I'm just feeling like, you're feeling sleepy. You know, I, oh, where's that violin music coming from? You, you know, I'll tell you who's playing the violins. We see it right here. Okay, so he's just saying, heads up, everybody. Be smart. It's not just about what you can see and feel with your senses. You are spiritual beings. I am a spiritual God. I have spiritual angels. There's a spiritual heaven. There's a spiritual hell. There's a spiritual dynamic, and you better factor that in and live accordingly. That's really kind of the, the, the heartbeat of what's going on here. And so, you know, we get down here and we see we have an unseen enemy. He's the devil. And he comes right out without a lot of fanfare. And he says, hey, the point is of this whole thing is to stand against, look, look at this, the devil's schemes. So if you know anything about these verses right here, three things, uh, these powers are powerful. They have authority. Two, they're wicked. And three, they're deceptive because he uses the word schemes. Now, who is this devil? Very interesting. He's mentioned the devil twice to them, but he doesn't go into the whole origin of the devil and who he is and all of that. He knows that they know, and apparently they have sufficient knowledge where he can just mention them, and they're like, oh, yeah, we've been taught about that. For our purposes, we got a lot of newbies here. I'll just tell you quickly in just a couple minutes here that the devil, that name devil means to accuse or to slander. Satan means enemy or adversary. And he starts out good as uh, Lucifer, an angel, a good angel. And there was something about his magnificence and his beauty that corrupted him. He fell in love with himself in Ezekiel 38. In Isaiah 14, he wants to take charge. So he says five times, I will rise above God's throne and seat myself above God. So that's where it all started. He becomes now the devil, right? He apparently, John hints, that a third of the good angels fell along with him at that time. Uh, that's in Revelation chapter 12. There's a hint about that. And so apparently a third of the good angels have fallen. We call them fallen angels. Biblically, they're called demons. There's one devil. He can only be one place at one time. But when he's working, he's working through a hierarchical system that you see described in four words right here, rulers, authorities, powers, and spiritual forces. Well, he's counterfeiting what God does. That's what God has in place with angelic hosts and cherubim and seraphim and all of that. So he wants to be, it's always been his dream. He wants the position, so he's counterfeiting that. But only his government unseen, is working evil, while God is working uh, good. And so, you know, it, it seems like uh, God and his guys and, and the devil and his crew are duking it out. And guess who the coveted prize is? You. You and me, a human soul. Yeah. You know, in Daniel, they're seeing these demon, demons and angels fighting to control nations and na national leaders. And often we think 
incorrectly that they're not interested in us. They are interested in us. Why? Because you're the apple of God's eye. God loves you with an everlasting love. You mean something to God. So to hurt you, to harm you, to separate you from eternal life, to get you to to doubt or to shipwreck your Christian life so that you're no good to the other side, you're important, especially once the Holy Spirit comes on board. Because you're dangerous, not because of you, but because of who just came on board. He can say or do something that's going to increase God's kingdom through you. Therefore, you're a threat, you see. So the devil, one place at one time, but you'll often hear in the Bible where he's working. But he not, not, doesn't necessarily have to be present in your home. By extension, through his networking of the four words that you see in your text, that that is ascribed to him, the devil. And so just some theology there. So what about these schemes? He's got an agenda. Look at that word, schemes. It means uh, really to plot or to strategize a conspiracy. And, and his, I mean, it's terrible. First Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be alert, be self-controlled. Your enemy, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, resist him. I mean, he's got schemes. He studies us. He has a plan. We cannot see him. It doesn't mean he's not there. But we certainly know when he's been around afterwards, uh, nine times out of 10. And as I've said, he takes, takes advantage of our failures. He gets an open door. He wreaks havoc. He lies to us. He discourages us. He causes despair, insecurity, fear, guilt, and shame. Uh, he's just, just terrible strategy. And, and, and I like this quote. Satan promises the best but pays the worst. He promises honor but pays with disgrace. He promises pleasure and pays with pain. He promises profit but pays with loss. He promises life and pays with death. And so what are we going to do about all this? He says, hey, heads up. I want you to win this battle. But you can't win the battle if you don't know what's out there ready to trip you up because you can't see. So God's saying, now you see. Now what do you do? He says, stick close to me. Find your strength in me. And here we go now. He says, be strong in the Lord. By the way, be strong in the Lord's in the passive in the Greek. It, it, it puts us on the other end of receiving the strengthening, which is really important. You know, he's not saying, hey, Kent, come on, man up. He's saying, let the Lord strengthen you. As you're reading the Bible, as you fellowship in church, as you're listening to uh, the gospel being taught and preached, you see these things. So he says, put on the full armor of God now that God provides so that you can stand your ground, withstand the attacks. And at the end of the day, after when he says that in the day of evil, everyone has one. You will have a day of evil when you're right at the fork and it's like, should I? destroy my life and do this or not when it's everything you ever wanted to do and it's your button and he's pushing the button and all the lights are lit up it's your day of evil man it's the day of testing 
He says, when your day of testing come, because you've been walking and being strengthened in the Lord, and it's in his mighty power, and you're protected by the full armor of God, when your time comes, and your time's going to come, and, and, and it comes, it doesn't just come one time. The day of evil is multiple calendar events, you see, unfortunately. And he says, when that day comes, you stand. You stand. How? Next verse. Stand. And now he's going to use the analogy of Roman armor. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Verse 17, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so what you have before you now is the means or the method of what, uh, what is needed to stand uh, against the schemes of the evil one. Uh, so I like this little picture. I mean, spiritual battle is what the Bible talks about. Is is that uh, he describes it as a battle. They're the fiery darts of the evil one. You know, we're going to talk about that. Uh, but I, I let me show you a description of the Roman armor. I, I know how Paul got inspired to compare six of these pieces. Uh, two dynamics of salvation in the Christian life that bring protection. I know how he could think, wow, hey, I think of the helmet like this and I think of the shield of this in the Christian life because he was chained to soldiers. You know, half of his ministry, he was around Roman guards, He's always in trouble getting pulled out of angry moms that wanted to tear him from limb to limb. So he's got this picture and as he's writing, he's, he mentions he's chained to one. So he's chained to one of these guys, and so he's just sitting there thinking, you know, and the Holy Spirit is working, and he goes, you know what? And he starts to talk. So you can put the verses back up, and just we're going to take six pieces that Paul says, these six pieces are either aspects of our salvation that God has given us that we just need to be reminded of, or or there are things in the Christian life God has made available to us that we need to take more seriously because they have protective elements about them. They have protective benefits, right? And so if you live in a world where there's minefields, spiritual minefields, and you want to do well, you want to pay attention to the things in the Christian life that bring protection and so uh, he's put on the full armor of God, not just a few pieces of it. Uh, he says, put the whole thing on. And, and, and it starts with the belt of truth. Now, there are six pieces now. And uh, why does he start with the belt of truth? It's the first piece is the most important, truth. The belt of truth held everything in place. The sword, the other pieces of the armor, everything was contingent on a belt that was cinched tight. To loosen the belt meant you were off duty, off guard, and the Christian is called never to loosen the belt. Why does truth, and well, first of all, what is? It's the gospel. 
It's for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. But it's more than just the gospel. It's the word of God. Thy word is truth, Jesus said. It's more than just the word of God. It's Christ himself is the truth. So what it is really is the revelation, the truth that protects you is the revelation of who God is, who we are, what God wants, what our purpose is, what God requires, and how to be saved. That is the truth that Jesus said sets our hearts free. And when you embrace the truth, there's a protective element to it. And so his strategy is to lie or to distort the gospel truth and start changing things around. Because if you change the belt or take off the belt, the whole thing comes apart. So let's change the ideas about hell and human sexuality. The Bible already talks about the last days that people will hate the belt of truth. Christians, so-called Christians, will tear that thing off and say, give me a belt that is just more inclined with how the world thinks, makes me a little bit more acceptable in the workplace, less opposition, less offensive. And so they start changing the gospel of truth. But to change the gospel is to have no gospel. The gospel has boundaries. So he says, do not mess with the belt of truth because it holds everything together. The second piece is the breastplate of righteousness. Now, this was made of bronze, and it it was called the heart protector, right? And so it protected the vital organs. Now, What's really cool about righteousness in the Bible is it's nothing you do. So he's reminding you of your protection that you can stand and go, you know what, I'm going to stand here and I'm not moving. He's just reminding you of something that you have that Christ has given you through faith. Faith plus grace alone, he says, makes you righteous. God gifts a person by simple trust his righteousness. All that means is he, because you trust him, nothing to do with your behaviors. Because you trust God, he makes you right with him. He puts you right with him because of what Christ did. He says, that fact that it's not based on anything you do protects you, gives you confidence. And you stand there and say, come on, let the whole world come undone because it doesn't depend on me. It's so, such a protection because it brings confidence and joy. Now, where the scheme would be, the scheme is to make it all about you and how good you are and what you do and what you don't do, and that you're a religious person. And then what happens? You perish because your good works are like filthy rags, the Bible says. They cannot save you. So there will be... Millions of people who will, on that last terrible day, they will find themselves perishing with a Bible in their hands, with prayer beads, with all kinds of religious things going on, and hymn books and everything, and, 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 and a priest by their side, and they don't know Jesus because they believe in a righteousness of their own works. I've done this, this, and this, and this, therefore I'm going to heaven. But he says the Christian is protected against that terrible loss. By God's righteousness, he gifted to us and isn't based on whether I'm a good boy or a bad boy, but whether I have faith in him. That's 
protection. That's confidence. That makes you, I'm standing here. The third one is the soldier's footwear. It's kind of interesting. Scholars are kind of bewildered by it. What are the feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace? I've read and read and read for 30 plus years. This is what the majority of scholars believe this thing. First of all, show the picture of the, the dude with the, with the sandals there. They're called the, the, the Roman dude. Uh, they're called the war sandals or the war boots. Uh, they don't look like boots here. They do have a version that looks like a boot. Uh, the soles are studded like cleats. They allow the foot to have some room to move, and there's some protection. And, and what they're saying is, is that the, the war sandal, the war boot, enabled the soldier to, to go forward in advance, but also not to lose their footing. So what does this have to do with the gospel of peace? He's saying that when you're in ministry mode, when your life is about sharing the gospel, other-centered, what can I do for you today, God? Are there good works you prepared for me to do today? Which he said, by the way, is your destiny. God created you in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for you to find. So today there are good works, that's God's will, for you to find. And the way you find them is being intent on doing good works, the gospel of peace, the gospel of peace motivating you to hold your ground and to be ministry-minded. Listen, the devil's workshop, what is it? It's an idle mind. It's somebody who's not going anywhere, going to a party, but he's not thinking, maybe I could share the gospel, and he brings his Bible. That's somebody who's protected. It's the idle mind. It's the person just wandering around. He's not in, listen, he's not in ministry mode. Now, mom, you can be in ministry mode because you're raising their kids and you're looking for teaching moments. You're in the, the gospel of peace, the evangelism mode, when you're just thinking, how can I raise my kids in the Lord? How can I be a blessing to my husband and wife? How can I share and shine the light at work? You're protected from straying in the path and losing your footing because you're, you've got the work of your father on your heart and mind. You're an engaged Christian. And being an engaged Christian is a source of protection. Moving on. Now we've got the fourth piece, I believe, is the uh, first a description of what it is and then what it can do. It's the shield of faith. I love that one um, because it puts out all the fiery darts of the evil one. Fiery darts don't sound like fun. Let's talk about the, the um, shield. It is uh, three and a half feet uh, long, three foot wide. So it's kind of large. And uh, it had two layers of wood glued together, covered with animal hide and reinforced with iron top and bottom. And, and it was designed to put out uh, incendiary devices. In other words, here's what they did. They dipped the arrows into tar and pitch and then lit it on fire and... Right? And so Paul sees that, spiritually speaking, that the devil will take thoughts and feelings, and use situations, and conclusions that we make, and implications, and, and look at us in our minds and go, 
and a fiery dart comes and says, she doesn't love you anymore. Or, or that person is, has said something terrible about you and it gets to you. Mean-spirited criticism, betrayal is a fiery dart. All these kinds of things that, that can come in. You know what I'm talking about when you're laying in bed trying to sleep and it's just burning. It's just burning. Oh, it can be not just that. A fiery dart is a pang, a pang of lust suddenly, a pang of greed, a pang of rage. Hey, oh, uh, oh, Barb and I have had this thing. I've told you about it before. We've been married 30 years. We always knew through the years, and basically because Barb has that womanly intuition, women have a spiritual radar that guys just don't have. And so a dumb thing would happen, and there would be, would it be equal response to the dumb thing that happened? And Barb would go, whoa, wait a second here. Hey, let's just pray right here. Or I would do it. Let's just pray because there's more going on here than me and you in the kitchen talking about the dishes, right? Because suddenly, bam, where did that come from? Ladies and gentlemen, the fiery dart of the evil one. <laughs> but you're not, <clears throat> you're not thinking that. You're just thinking you're just washing the dishes talking about your day. But the Bible says, no, you're not. You're not alone in the kitchen. There are rulers and powers and principalities and authorities and a devil that's looking for someone to destroy. But we just think, oh, I just washed the dishes, you know, and then we explode and then we don't talk to each other for three or four days, not us. <laughs> and then what happens? You don't talk to each other for a couple weeks and then what happens? The secretary starts talking. Oh, you look nice today. Are you working out? You know, all of that stuff. All of that stuff starts going. And what did it happen? It happened because someone was in your kitchen while you were watching, washing dishes, thinking we're just washing dishes, and someone took aim at you with a fiery dart. Bam! And it all started there. And then they started lining up all little Miss uh, Secretary you know, or little Mr. Jim Workout Boy or whatever. We, <laughs> I don't know what little Jim Workout Boy means. <laughs> Personal trainer, okay? He's, <laughs> he's got it all figured out. And what, where did it all start? What could have stopped it? Just saying, hey, wait a second, let's pray. Faith. Faith. So then when you're burning because somebody betrayed you, you go to the Psalms in faith and trust. God, I give you this situation. I pray for this person. You know me. You love me. You're going to work this for good. Faith that there's a God who's listening and he knows the truth and he's got my back. That brings the soothing and the, and the healing and the protection from those kinds of fiery darts. But you have to know and trust in the Lord, because in trusting, there is protection. And now he moves on to the helmet of salvation. Remember I told you some of these things, he says, put it on. What he's saying is, you can't, you can't do anything for salvation. It came as a free gift because you believed in Christ. What he's saying is this, could you just in the moment that you're being attacked, remember who you are? You're saved. 
You're saved. You're not going to hell. Your sins have been forgiven. You're going to reign and rule with Christ. Not only are you saved, that helmet of salvation is speaking of, that brings confidence, the stand, but you will be saved completely face to face with a glorious new body. Jesus said, I'm going to give those who love me and overcome a seat with me on my throne. Now, when you start to put that on and go, this is who I am, nothing can stop me because whoever is born of God overcomes the world, 1 John chapter 5. That's the helmet of salvation. What it does, it just makes you not run away like a little baby or hide under the bed. It makes you say, bring it on. Bring it on. Not in a proud, arrogant way. Right, And so uh, lastly, we've got the sword of the spirit, my favorite piece. And, and it's the short little sharp dagger, which says, Bible commentators say, what that means is, is that hand-to-hand combat was expected. In other words, this is for when the devil gets up close and personal. You have a weapon. That weapon, by the way, is seen coming out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus in symbolic action in Revelation 19 when the Lord appears at Armageddon and the armies of the world see him and want to fire upon him. It says a sword, same word, comes out of his mouth and devours them. It means when God speaks, things happen. It's his word. So he says, people, I want to tell you about a weapon you have that I've given you that not only can function as a defense, but it can attack. And in this case, in a good way, we are called to, to, to evangelize the world. My friend, some of you and some of us have friends at our tables that are perishing. If Christ came today, they'd be left behind and then who knows where they'd end up. But he's given us the gospel, the word of God, which stabs somebody to life that opens up their heart and lets the Holy Spirit in when they receive the gospel. So he says, use the word of God as powerful. I told you about several times about Mike, this uh, guy I was sharing the gospel with. Uh, I worked for Pepsi. He worked for an inferior company called, Co- <laughs> called Coke. And we were merchandising a store and we were talking. I've told you this. I just love this story because, you know, I, the power of the word of God, man, it's not just like Huck Finn. It's got power. So we're talking about something, and for some reason, I said to him, hey, if God is for us, who could be against us? And he goes, if God is for us, who could be against us? Where'd you get that? Wow. He goes, wow, if God is for me, who could be against me? That's something you like. I'm going to go home and say that to my girlfriend. And I'm like, dude, you do that. You know, you do that. And he goes, where'd you get it? I said, I got it out of a book. You know, it's called a Bible. I got a book filled with one-liners like that. I like to get you. And I did end up getting him a Bible. But what, what I saw in him, and then he was just hooked. You know what happened? I didn't even know it. I, I was armed. I pulled out a dagger 
And I thrust it into his heart. And it went down into his soul and spirit. I didn't even know I did it. I was like, whoops. You know, <laughs> whoops. Praise the Lord. <laughs> right? These same people use it. And why don't you use it more often? Because you have a devil who's scheming. Stay away from the word. Oh, you don't understand the word. Stay away from the word. Oh, don't, don't bring it up. They'll be offended. Don't do this. Don't do that. Fear, fear, intimidation, intimidation. Why? Because it's powerful. The other thing, I mean, that's for going forward with people, right? And, and you know, it helps me in my own life when I get all tripped up. I'll start quoting the word of God, and it cuts away all the complications and all the entanglements. You know, it's just a beautiful thing. What did Jesus do when he met with the devil in this mysterious confrontation in Matthew chapter 4? The spirit is leading, and there's some kind of wrestling match. And the, and the Lord Jesus Christ had been fasting 40 days, and the enemy appears. And the enemy confronts him and says, hey, listen, you're hungry, man. Check out those stones. Don't they just look like little warm muffins that just came out of the oven that your mama used to make you? Come on, man. Just use a little, take matters into your own hands, man, and make some bread. And what does Jesus say? Jesus, he says, it is written in the Bible, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3. Man doesn't live by bread alone. It's more important to obey God and the words that come out of his mouth than getting my three square meals a day. So he goes, okay, you're quoting scripture? I'm good at that. So he, he comes up with Psalm 91 and he says, hey, listen, I was just reading Psalm 91, it says, his angels will take charge over you lest you dash your little foot against a rock. So I've got this idea. Let's throw you off of the, jump off the temple pinnacle. Everybody will see you and see your power. You won't have to go to the cross. You know, we'll just work this all out. You know, because after all, Psalm 91 says, hey, he, I got the sword too. Uh, uh, they'll bear you up. They'll catch you. No problem. Jesus. He pulls out the sword again. Deuteronomy chapter 6, he says, do not put the Lord to the test. And he says, that's written. And then he says, okay, one last chance. Listen, I wanted this for only a few thousand years, but would you bow down and worship me? Now, you know I wrestled dominion from your boy, Adam. It belongs to me. I'm the prince of the power of the air now but I'll gladly sign it over. You will not have to go to that cross. I'll give it to you, right? Uh, if you just worship and bow down. And Jesus pulls out the sword again. And he says, Deuteronomy chapter 6, 13, worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Right in the gut. And that guy, right? Until a more opportune time. But then the battle was over. What did Jesus do? Jesus could have defeated him in so many different ways. He's modeling for us. Christian, when you're back against the wall and you can feel that fiery breath on the back of your, the neck of your soul, take out the word of God. God has not given me a spirit of fear, but a power and of love and a sound mind. 
to fear. Have no anxiety about anything, but in everything, through prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will come down and guard your heart through Christ Jesus. Another one right there. Perfect love casts out all fear. Oh, that's a beautiful one. Set your mind on things above where Christ is seated. Whatever things are good and right and noble and pure and excellent and worthy of praise, let your mind think on these things. No temptation has taken you, except that is common to everybody. And God is faithful with the temptation to not let you be tempted more than you can bear, but with the temptation itself to provide a way of escape. How about saying that when you're tempted to do your thing? You won't do it because there's power. You bring out that sword and you start quoting away and swinging away. And I'll tell you what, man, you will have a different life. I just got a question for you. How long are you going to let Satan use you as a punching bag? lie to you and exploit all your weaknesses and mess up your family and your marriages and your kids. And what are you? You're so quiet about it. No pulling out the sword. No using the sword. I have counseled people for 30 years. They sit in my office and they got all these problems. And I'm thinking of scriptures, scripture, 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 scripture. And, and, uh, and I'll make a list for them. Here's some scriptures. When that happens, quote the scripture, use the scripture, believe, act on this scripture. So Jesus is saying, man, you've got a, a weapon in your pocket. You're going down with the sword strapped to your side and you're going over. Oh, that's the worst thing. I mean, this is absolutely a ridiculous illustration, but let me tell it anyway. <laughs> this one coming up. You know Survivor. Have you ever watched Survivor? They need to wear more clothes. But outside of that, uh, <laughs> they're on an on a island, and they're trying to vote each other off and all of that. Well, the worst thing of all is when they find a hidden immunity idol, which if you find it buried somewhere, you take it, and then secretly it keeps you from being voted off. You have immunity but you got to know when to use it because you got to use it before the votes, right? And so many, many times they'll have the immunity idol in their pocket and they bring it to the council. Everybody's voting, but they get lied and duped into thinking it's not them tonight and they keep the immunity idol in their pocket and then everyone votes them out and they go home, they miss a chance for a million dollars with the immunity idol in their pocket. I know many, many Christians who get voted out, who have troubles, who are injured, and leave the path with the immunity at all. The sword, the weapon's right there. And for some reason, you don't use it. Let me suggest that you stop not using it and start using it. Amen. Amen. He goes on to finish up with prayer. 
Pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am ambassador in chains. Pray that I might uh, declare it fearlessly as I should. Now, why isn't prayer given as one of the elements or pieces of the armor. I'll tell you why. Because prayer brings us into right relationship with God as evidence of a living, breathing relationship with God. If not, if you put prayer as one of the pieces of the armor, you and I would think, you know, it's a formula. Here are six pieces. We just need the six pieces. But the six pieces mean nothing if you don't have a living, breathing relationship with the God who supplies the armor. The armor will not work without the energizing prayer, and the prayer stands for a relationship with them every day, right? No, it's not about a religion of do's and don'ts and rules and all of this, it's about knowing God, talking to him, sharing my heart with him, him listening, him speaking. And so he says, listen, if you want to energize and make that armor work, you've got to be in relationship with the Father, speaking to him and praying. So he says, number one, pray in the Spirit. Let the Holy Spirit guide your prayers. Let them be biblical prayers. Let him stir you up. Learn how to cooperate and be spirit-led and spirit-filled. He helps us with our prayers. He knows we're weak. So pray in the spirit on all occasions. So not just at church, not just when your wife says, hey, we have a problem, but on all occasions, at work, uh, on vacation, when you're happy, when you're sad. How many people uh, don't like friends who only call them when they need something, right? Is that your relationship with him? He's saying pray on all occasions, when you're happy, when you're sad, when you just want to say, God, I just want to tell you how much I love you. Here are 10 reasons I love you. You know, that's just something I did just the other day just because I had time on my hands. And I was like, I like to try to surprise God, but it's, it's impossible. <laughs> but I like to pretend in my mind that he can't see it coming. So like, hey, what's up with that? So I'll just say while I'm driving, here are 10 reasons I re- what I really like about you. You know, I, on all occasions, talk to him about every feeling. Lay it out there. Stop with these dry, boring little prayers. Talk to him. Share your heart. This is how I'm feeling. That made me mad. That made me sad. I like this. I don't like that. Hey, that stuff. All kinds of prayers and requests, right? With this in mind, be alert and always keep praying for one another in the church. Nothing will make a church a more healthy place and a happier place than when you're praying for one another, right? Because when when we're praying for one another, the offense levels can drop. You can't really stay mad at somebody you're praying for, right? Or you're more forgiving, more gracious. The second you start to pray for somebody who who irritates you, son, (laughs) not that anybody in this church would ever irritate any of you, but in other churches, they pray. 
And, and what happens is it just engenders a warmth and a love. So he says, keep on instead of criticizing and getting offended and talking about people, talk to God in behalf, on behalf of those people. And you'll find your attitudes changing and the church being a really nice place. And then he goes on, pray for me also. Why does he have to say that? He says, I'm in chains, I'm in jail, they may kill me, and it's a scary place, and I need some prayers to, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery. What is he saying? I'm scared. I am scared. I'm the apostle Paul, and this might get to me. I need, twice he says fearlessly. Why? Because he's tempted to cower back. They're going to cut my head off, people. Can you be praying for me? And people are in the congregation saying, you know what, Paul? You know, you're the apostle Paul. You pray for us, man. You know where all the scriptures are. You're writing the Bible. We don't need to pray for you. You guys need, you pray for us, right? Pray for me. I'm asking you. Pray for me. If you were the enemy and you wanted to take down this church, if you wanted to multiply your arrows, instead of going one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, all the way up to hundreds of people, really, you could hurt them all by just taking one guy out. So everybody, instead of doing one, two, wasting time, wasting, well, not necessarily wasting time, Let's just go for one or two key people. Take them down, and then the objective will be met. Pray for me. Pray for me. Look what I do all the time. I'm getting in everybody's face in Santa Rosa and sharing the gospel. That's dangerous. I could end up in jail. Pray for me. Pray for my wife. <laughs> Pray for us, right? And so he finishes up with a few words. Tychicus is the one who wrote the letter for him. Paul dictates his letters. And Tychicus is from Ephesus. And he's there with him. And he's writing the letter. And he's saying, we love this guy. He's faithful servant in the Lord. He'll tell you everything. He'll fill in all the gaps. I'm also sending him uh, for that very purpose. So, so you'll know what's going on. And he can encourage you. Look at Paul. Paul, dude, you're in prison. And you're, all you care about is them and that they get encouraged. That's so awesome. And then four words that he wishes or blesses or prays for, four very important words. Peace is that shalom, peace, a sense of overall, overall well-being, that God would give that peace, that God is for you who could be against you. Peace to the brothers. Love, God's unconditional love of you. That's a beautiful thing. He's wishing it for them with faith, the ability to trust God, take, believe his promises. He's going to come through for you. Have faith in him. Walk with him. More faith, more love, more peace. And then finally, he says, grace, this unmerited favor, the God's smile on you. May he always just, just shine down that wonderful favor and mercy and kindness upon your life. And there you have it, the book of Ephesians. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, just uh, so much to think about. Thank you for the heads up on the spiritual warfare. Help us to take these truths and put them into practice, we pray. 
and be blessed. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at calvarytherock.org.